the no-fly list, what is it? Who gets on it and why? Who maintains this list and how do you get off of it? Eduardo Angeles from Clark Hill joins us to explain. I'm Lawrence Coletti and this is Legal Talk Today. All right. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for making this show part of your day. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. And we're just going to jump right into our topic. I've always been curious about the no-fly list and how it works. And today we're getting an opportunity to learn more about it. And we have a wonderful guest joining us, Eduardo Angeles. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lawrence. Uh, pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Pleasure's all, all mine on this side. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about the uh, the no-fly list. So, Eduardo, I know that you're the uh, the managing director and senior counsel at Clark Hill, but you also have a background in aviation. Would you mind sharing that with us? Certainly. I started my career uh, being an in-house attorney in the San Francisco International Airport as a member of the San Francisco City Attorney's Office, and so spent nearly a decade at SFO serving as their in-house attorney. Then I was chief attorney for public protection for the city and county of San Francisco, meaning that I was in charge of all anything that basically protected the interests of the, the public in the city and county of San Francisco. And then 9-11 happened, and I wanted to go back into airport and aviation. And so then uh, relocated myself and my family over to Los Angeles, uh, where I then served as general counsel of uh, Los Angeles World Airports, uh, specifically LAX. At the time, they also run Van Nuys Airport, which is a general aviation airport, and at the time, a mid-sized airport in Ontario, the Inland Empire in Los Angeles. After that, I served in various capacities as a a legal counsel uh, in Los Angeles, uh, but then ended up being appointed uh, in the Federal Aviation Administration under President Obama's administration as the FAA Associate Administrator for Airports, which in essence meant that I was uh, had oversight of all the airports in the United States and I was in charge of you know finance, engineering. My budget was $3.5 billion. After serving in the Obama administration, I then went back to Los Angeles and continued uh, serving at LAX being as in-house attorney before I I then joined Clark Hill. So I have about three decades worth of experience in the aviation industry and obviously with a specialty in airports. Excellent. Excellent. You know, it's funny. I uh, was doing my research for the show. I finally learned how to spell Van Nuys. <laughs> so I'm not, not a native California, but uh, if I look that up, I'm like, that's not how I would imagine that to have looked. So anyway, I want to uh, I want to transition over to the no fly list. And so just want to start with some uh, basic questions for you, Eduardo, just kind of a three part, super basic question to get things started. You know, just officially speaking, what is the no fly list? And then approximately when was it created? And then today, who is responsible for maintaining? So the no-fly list is really a a small subset of the U.S. government terrorist screening database, which is maintained by the FBI. It was created back in 1997 and was really to address the threat, terrorist threat, from foreign lands at the time to identify people that potentially could get on an airplane, use it as a weapon, and have a terrorist act, which is exactly 
uh, what happened in 9-11. So those, in a sense, are the folks that it was initially intended to identify so that it was a tool by the federal government for us to curtail any potential terrorist act on our domestic land. And Department of Homeland Security, the TSA, they're the ones that are actually uh, sort of implement and makes those determinations as it relates to getting on and off a no-fly zone. Now, if you're a U.S. citizen uh, or lawful permanent resident, you uh, theoretically are sent a letter informing you that you were on a no-fly list, and it gives you an opportunity to then, you know, submit additional information and to try to address uh, the identification. And, and I guess. Uh, get off the no-fly list in some you know, sort of bureaucratic, administrative way. Well, we'll get into that just a little bit, just kind of getting off the list. But Eduardo, I know there's a, a lot of different reasons someone can get on the no-fly list. And as I've uh, you know come to understand, there's probably going to be some changes to that coming out of this election cycle. And so just from your experience, what are some of the reasons that people find themselves on the no-fly list? Like, what are the things that they do? Well, again, going back to its organic origin, the FBI obviously maintains uh, a database of folks that they are tracking nationally and, and obviously with the CIA internationally and NSA and folks that are in charge of protecting our security. Uh, I don't believe it's a secret that uh, they know that if you have ill intent uh, against our government or, or plan to commit crimes, that you somehow are identified with respect to whether it's Facebook postings or, or social media, or they just know that you're connected somehow to some sort of terrorist group. And uh, within that, they then uh, identify a person as potential threat. Now, you know, the ACLU and others uh, have challenged the, the methodology for because uh, it, it is a little bit amorphic and a little bit what is the rational basis for getting a person on the no-fly list and they've been a little bit obtuse with respect to explaining how and why and, and understandably so because they don't want to disclose their methodology uh, as it relates to security matters of how uh, that is determined. So that is my understanding of it. Do we know today approximately how many people are considered to be on the no-fly list? From my understanding, the United States, as well as Canada, uses the no-fly list. And there's about 680,000 people uh, thought to be linked somehow and and, uh, included in the no-fly list. And so that's the last stats that I am aware of. Well, let's say someone is on that no-fly list and they decide to book a flight. When does the enforcement actually occur? Is it while they're booking the flight, while they're at the airport, or is it like you know on their return trip, they're trying to come home, they refuse to flight, and then they have to rent a car to drive home? How does it enforce just kind of from your experience? From my experience, you usually is basically getting up to the actual counter at the initial stages. If you're trying to check in a baggage, uh, it's flagged at that uh, juncture with respect to making sure that the, uh, you know, looking at your ID, looking at your uh, your name, et cetera, et cetera. Then there is a computer generated aspect of it that identifies you as being on an on-fly list. Now, if you would have checked in in advance, that would have identified you as well because when you book, the name doesn't match. So then you have to deal with that at the airport. And all throughout the system, there is a methodology, obviously, of, of identifying you, of being able to 
get on that airplane, whether it's through TSA or whether it's through the gate. So there are constant, you know, sort of checkpoints that you have to undergo. And at the inception is really the best way to inform you that you're on a no-fly list and can't take this flight. So it sounds like it can happen at any place during your journey, but uh, most of the time they, they seem to get you up front. That's the hope. I mean, the program is designed to make sure that you don't get on the airplane. So uh, it fails if somehow you're able to breach all of those uh, checkpoints and then are on the airplane, because obviously it was not designed for you to be able to get on the airplane. If you're able to get on and you're no-fly list, then the system failed. Okay, well, let's say uh, you're on the no-fly list. You did nothing wrong. Let's say you haven't flown in like 20 years. And all of a sudden, one day, you're trying to book a flight to go see grandma. And you end up, you discover much to your uh, dismay that you're on the no-fly list. So what can you do to challenge that listing? Well, uh, again, there are, uh, the theory is, is that you would have known if you're an American citizen or permanent resident that you've been placed on a no-fly list. And bureaucratically, you can then, you know, sort of go to the Department of Homeland Security and challenge that determination and prove the fact that, you know, you have a similar name and you're not the actual person that has been identified as somehow a terrorist threat. And you have to go through that bureaucratic process. I don't know all the, the steps and determination of what the TSA or Homeland Security does, Department of Homeland Security in terms of getting you off. But I know that there has been levels of frustration from a lot of folks to be allowed uh, to fly and to be removed from the no-fly list. Well, let's close it out with a, a policy question about the constitutionality of the no-fly list. And, and I understand that uh, you know there's sort of a balanced argument between flight safety and uh, you know restricting people's ability to fly and rights. And so maybe you can walk us through a little bit of the balancing of the policy. Let me just point out, you know, the federal government is divided into uh, different sectors, right? So number one, you have the Federal Aviation Administration, who has really been charged with the safety of an airplane and air travel. And this was divided as a result of 9-11. That's what uh, Homeland Security and TSA was created after that, because you needed a department in, in the federal government that was focused on security. So I think it's important for your listeners to understand and appreciate those divisions of responsibilities. And recently, uh, in some of the things that have been being debated and discussed, whether it's a, a no mass or unruly passengers, as the Federal Aviation Administration has the regulatory tools to be able to govern over those, which is Steve Dixon, the FAA administrator, recently issued out an executive directive indicating that any sort of assault or threats or intimidations and interference with airline crew members is going to be vigorously enforced, uh, including a 35 $1,000 penalty and, and encouraging enforcement by imprisonment if to be referred to the prosecutorial aspect of it. So that's that's one aspect. The other aspect is what we've been talking about is a no-fly list, which is really a security specific, which is the responsibility of the Department of Homeland Security. I think what I want your listeners to appreciate is the fact is, is that you don't have any sort of constitutional right to fly. American Airlines, United, Delta, Southwest, you name the airline, it's a business. And so at the end of the day, they themselves have also have a right to refuse to uh, transport passengers for their reasons. Uh, and recently, since the pandemic, they've been doing it for not wearing a mask. And you've seen a lot of that in the media. But it's the right of them to refuse to serve 
passengers, just like a restaurant has the right to refuse service. You've seen these signs, you know, no shirt, no shoes, no service. Uh, well, in the airlines uh, world, it's no mask, no service. You can't fly uh, on my airline. You can select as, as a passengers to take another airline who doesn't have that mandate, or you can decide to drive take a bus, take a train, other modes of transport. Uh, but I think the misconception is is somehow that Americans have a constitutional right to fly, which is not the case. Well, I'll just inject my opinion here because I think that airlines should refuse to allow people on flights that refuse to wear shoes while they're on the flights. <laughs> but that's just my <laughs> personal opinion. Yeah, we all have those little uh, sort of annoyances when we travel as it relates to how sh- people should behave or uh, while they're on flight. So I-, I will agree with you on on some aspects of that. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Eduardo. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much, Lawrence, for having me, and I look forward to having these debates in your program. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you liked our episode today, do us a favor, leave us a review. It's free of charge, and we don't ask any questions. Lastly, I want to thank our team producer, Molly McDonough, and our LTN crew for all their hard work. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. 